0: We send seed out. We do. And people get saved. and So it's a a blessing to me that we have all of this going on through Turning Point. And it's only just begun. Amen? Only just begun. All right, we're going to look tonight at the Almost says Song of Solomon. Can you believe that? Which is Solomon's involved. But we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. And we're going to cover chapter 3. And it is good stuff. Let's just pray together. And ask God to speak to us about life on the edge. Father, we just thank you for this word of wisdom, this book of wisdom. That you have given to us so that we can increase in wisdom. And Lord, thank you for the testimony of this book. That the Holy Spirit is the inspiration behind this book. And that Lord, he's got something to say to us tonight. Now church, can you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, tonight I receive your word. Speak to me. Change my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him, God heard that prayer. It's going to happen for you. I believe that. Well, you, you recognize this chapter. There it is up there. Times and seasons. Say the last three with me. Turn, turn, turn. The birds got rich off of that. But I wonder if they listened to any of it. I wonder if they really caught what the Bible was saying to them. Now, the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has realized that neither knowledge, or pleasure, nor work could bring them the kind of could bring him the kind of fulfillment his soul was crying out for. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe that that is where Americans look for fulfillment—either in knowledge, or pleasure, or work. If I can do the right thing, have the right career, I'll be fulfilled if I can really experience the kind of pleasure I want, that'll fulfill me. Or, you know, if I just get out there and and learn enough, then I'm going to reach a knowledge level where I'm going to be fulfilled. But Solomon had it all. Absolutely had everything you could have and said, I'm not fulfilled. It didn't do it. There's got to be more. There's something I'm looking for. I can't put my finger on it. Now, we've also seen him experience brief flashes of revelation of the hand of God moving in the affairs of men. And his, his, you can, as the book progresses, you're going to see his awareness of God, his revelation of God, his coming to terms with God increasing. So we're kind of really going to grow with him, okay? Now, it's not that he hadn't known the Lord, because we know that he knew the Lord. This is the same man that dedicated the temple And all the people in the temple fell on their faces because the power of God was so strong in that temple they couldn't stand up. And yet this man backslid through being influenced by pagan women, all the wives he married who had no faith in God, and they influenced him. Huge message on, it matters who you run with. Okay? If you want to walk with God, walk with people who walk with God. All right, Ecclesiastes is almost like a journal or a diary of his struggles with faith and many of the God questions that plague us today. And what does our culture, does this current society of ours have God questions? Lots of them. Now, he consistently uses phrases like under the sun, which means life without God, and vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which means everything is empty, everything is meaningless. And all he's proving to us is this. You can have it all, but if you don't have God, you're going to end up in a meaningless, empty life. It's a fact. Knowledge, pleasure, and career will not fulfill you deep down. They will those three things will not fill the God-shaped hole in every soul. God must do it, okay? So we learn that from Solomon. When you start reading Ecclesiastes, man, his state of mind is cynical. He is angry and he is disillusioned. And I am so glad that the Holy Spirit caused that to be written down and the truth to be told. That these Old Testament and and Bible characters that are heroes and well-known for various things, wisdom and whatnot, had super down moments where they questioned everything. Ever been there? At the beginning of chapter 3, Solomon launches into a Really a fantastic spiritual insight that a lot of Christians don't have. He sees that the providence of God rules everything in the universe he has created. How many of you can honestly say, Pastor Jeff, I believe God is in control of his universe. Not the devil. Not men. God. And history is marching towards the final conclusion that God himself has already described to us. And God is ultimately in charge of the affairs of men. Now, a lot of Christians live and die and never really, really get their mind around that. That God is in charge. He is sovereign and his providence rules over all. And Solomon is about to show us uh, that he has really seen this. Now watch this. Let's read it together. Verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Now, does that sound like he believes in the providence of God? To everything there is a season, decreed by God. A time for every purpose under heaven, given by God. Now, two important words are found here. Season, can we say it together? Season and time. Now, the word for time is eighth in Hebrew, and it's chronos in Greek. Now, we hear chronograph, chronography, chronos, this and that. You you recognize this in the English language, but chronos refers to the duration of something, how long it lasts. That's chronos. How long it lasts? What's your birthday? 33 years old. That's the chronos of your life so far, the duration of your life. Now, the word for season is Zaman in Hebrew and kairos in Greek. Now, the Greek word kairos refers to the characteristics of that season, while it lasts, what that season was like. Now, let me just give you, uh, let me expand on this a little bit. So, chronos has to do with quantity, kairos with quality. Okay. For instance, we could say that church lasted an hour and a half last Sunday, and we'd be talking about the chronos of the service, the duration. And then we could add that uh, uh, great conviction. We, we could add that great conviction fell on many lost folks, and they were saved. And God moved, and this and that happened in the service. And that would be describing the kairos or the characteristic or what the service was like. So you have the duration of the service and the characteristic of the service, what it was like, what characterized it. Okay, that's the two words. Uh, Dickens wrote the famous line. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He's describing there the kairos, or the characteristics of the time period, what the time period he was writing about was like. Okay? You could say a certain age was violent, a certain age was really sensual, or there was a certain time period where God really moved in England and America. We like to talk about the Great Awakening. You describe different eras of time, different generations, by different characteristics. So it's the best of times, was the worst of times. That's the Kairos. But then he might have said, and those times lasted 50 years, which would have been the Chronos or the duration. Now, here's what one commentator writes. That Solomon is essentially telling us that God, by his providence, governs the world and has determined various things and operations For particular time periods. In those appointed times, such things may be done with propriety and success. But if we neglect the appointed seasons, we sin against this providence and become the authors of our own distresses. Now, let me make this simple for you. God has decreed certain things over my life, your life, and we're all right now in a season... A particular season of our life. God even broke the, the, the outside uh, into four seasons. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Even life is broken up into seasons. But there are seasons to your life as well. I really do believe you have a season of being in the spring of your life. The summer of your life. The fall of your life. You know what that is? Everything's getting gray. (laughs) Eyesight's not as good. Hearing's not as good. (laughs) Fall cometh. And then the winter of your life. And I believe that the wisdom of God says, whatever season you're in, here's what the wisdom of God says. You need to seize it and take advantage of it because it won't always be there. Now look what Paul said. Paul the Apostle spoke of this very thing when he wrote to the Ephesians, quote, See then that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, doing what? Say this with me, everybody. Redeeming the time. And the Greek word there for time is kairos. Redeeming the kairos. Because the days are evil. What is he telling us to do? Make the most of every opportunity God brings into your life. By his providence. I am very, very aware that the, the, the season of my own life I, I, is, is to pastor this church, is to preach the word, is to reach as many people as we can with the word of God. It is to fulfill what he has called me to do. And I'm in that season. Now, if I were to step out of it and go do something else, I would bring distresses on my own life because you get out of the will of God, you get out of a lot of good things. Okay? So the, the, the message there is a time, there is a season, there is an appointed time, a fitting time for every purpose God has given you to do it. So you seize it while the seizing is good. Not working here, Tyler. I am so sorry, y'all, about these clickers. There it went. In other words, make the most. You're going to have to come get it, Tyler. It's not working. In other words, make the most of every opportunity that the providence of God brings your way. For that opportunity isn't always going to be there, folks. I have watched people get out of the will of God and somebody else be called in to do what they were supposed to do. And boy, that stings. If God's put his hand on me, I'm not going to let anybody else do it. I'm going to do it. Amen? Amen? Yeah. All righty. So say with me, seize it while the seizing is good. Now that was five of you. I'm going to try it again because all of you are in a season in your life. You have health. You can get to church. Your heart is beating. You're alive. You look alive. You have time ahead of you. You have opportunities ahead of you that God has given to you. So we can't let the seasons of our life slip by without seizing them. Because if we don't, they go down the street and somebody else gets them. In Acts 1, verse 6 to 7, the disciples have asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answered them by using both Chronos and Kairos. He said, it is not for you to know times, that's chronos the lengths of future periods, or seasons, Kairos, the characteristics of those periods, which the Father has, what did the Father do? with all seasons and times. Say it. Set within what? His own authority. Does that sound like God's in charge? All right. So God has set the times and seasons in his own authority. Jesus said, don't be focused on that. Instead, he told them the Holy Spirit would soon be poured out and they were to get on with kingdom business without being unduly preoccupied with future things. I love prophecy. I study it all the time. But let me tell you, I have my eye peeled on today, on what we are to do now. I'm getting done now, what God has his hand on us to do now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Tomorrow's not here yet. Yesterday's gone. We have today. So we're going to seize the season. Amen? Seize the seasons. Now, after establishing the fact of God's providence, Solomon launches into a lengthy list of all the things for which there are appointed seasons, during which time we are to respond to the opportunity that's provided. So let me just zip right through these. There's a time to be born. Everybody say amen, because you were born once, and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, and there is a time to pluck up what was planted. There's a time to kill. Don't run with that one. There is a time to kill, and I would say it's war. Don't go kill somebody. Well, it's my time. There's a time to kill, but there's a time to heal. There's a time to break down, and there is a time to build up. There's a time to weep, and if it's time to weep, you shouldn't be laughing. You ought to be weeping, and there's a time to laugh, and if it's time to laugh, you ought not be weeping. There's a time to mourn. And there is a time to dance. What season is it? See, he's, he's describing seasons. He's describing seasons in people's lives. There's a time to cast away stones. I take that to mean, in a time to gather stones, he's talking about there's a time to not build, and there's a time to build. Gather those stones and build, or cast those stones away and don't build yet. There's a time to embrace. And there is definitely a time to refrain from embracing. Kathy laughed at that one. That didn't, not here, right? No. I know what she's thinking. A time to refrain from embracing. There's a time, you see? Season. Kairos is the word for time in every one of these. A time, a time, a season, a season. There's a season to refrain from embracing, a season to embrace. There's a time to gain. And there is a time to lose. There is a season to keep. And there is a season that you ought to throw away. Let go of things. Turn loose. There's a time to tear. And there is a time to sow. There is a season to keep silence. And there is a season to speak. Every married person in here say amen to that one. Okay. There is a season to love and there's a season to hate. There's a season of war and there's a season of peace. Now, I want you to notice that in all this list, there's only two things mentioned that God himself executes where man has no choice. And you know what they are, birth and death. I can't choose to be born. I wasn't there. I can't choose when I'm going to die. He's going to tell us later, you can't retain your spirit when your time comes. Nobody has the power to retain their spirit when their time comes. But everything else in that list, all those other seasons, he tells us that uh, that it's up to us to reach out, take the initiative, and respond to what God is doing and seize it. I think it's real important to know the season you're in. Just ask God, what season am I in? What are you doing in my life? What should I be focused on? What should I really be praying about, thinking about, giving my time and energy to? What season am I in? Now, the next two verses, he he goes back to his despondency, and he's going to go back and forth like this a lot. This man was depressed, and I'm preaching on that this this weekend, how to overcome the giant of depression or a heavy heart. But he goes back to his despondency, and he says here in verses 9 and 10, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Now, there he is griping again about there being no profit in his labor. And last time we were here, we showed you if you're a believer, there's always profit in your labor if you do it as unto the Lord. There is redemption. Jesus redeemed our labor. Listen, the, the curse, part of the curse was God cursed the fruit of the ground. God sent vanity and futility into Adam and Eve's life. Their labor was cursed. It brought forth thorns and thistles and, and negative stuff. But Jesus redeemed work and made it now eternally valuable. So no matter what you do, he says, let all that you do be done as unto the Lord and not unto men. So you really don't work totally or ultimately for some earthly boss We all work for the ultimate boss man. His name is Jesus. Let all that you do be done as unto the Lord and not unto men. But here goes Solomon. He's not seeing it. He's he's thinking again, under the sun, life without God. He sees no redemptive value to his work. Somebody else will come and take it once he's died. Yada, yada, yada. The God-given task man is occupied with is the work that'll produce the need he has to stay alive vanity he cries meaningless but then he writes something really hopeful he switches he says in verse 11 he that is god has made everything beautiful in its time now i love that i love that so much that's such, that's poetry i think we ought to read it together can we he god has made everything beautiful in its time. And then he tells us something else about mankind. He has put eternity in their hearts, except that nobody can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. As the prophet told us, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Paul said God's workings cannot be scrutinized, cannot be discovered, cannot be found out he is so far beyond us but he said i can rest assured knowing that since god is a good god that he makes everything beautiful in its time now one commentator gills writes this quote god has made everything as all things in creation are made by him for his pleasure and glory and all well and wisely There is a beauty in them all. Who could walk out on a day like today and not say, thank you, God? I mean, who could look at this? I mean, I was sitting out in my backyard. Of course, I did cycle. I mean, to not cycle today would be a sin. But I sat in my backyard, and, boy, the birds are just going crazy. They're all singing like, you know, talking about the winter. Hallelujah, the wicked witch is dead. You know, they're, all, they're all, all the mockingbirds and cardinals and blackbirds and all these this, this, this huge chorus of different songs from the birds. Butterflies flying around everywhere. These different insects exploding seemingly from nowhere. And you look at all this beautiful spring, the you know, 80 degrees, beautiful sunshine. How can anyone look at that and say, well, this evolved from a single-celled amoeba in some primordial sea"? No, 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 no. God made it. God has made everything. All right? So, as all things in creation are made by him for his pleasure and glory, and he made all well, and he made it all wisely, there's beauty in them all. So, all things in providence. He upholds all things. He governs and orders all things according to the counsel of his will. Some he does himself, some he wills to be done by others, and some he allows to be done. But in all, there is a beauty and harmony, and all are ordered, disposed, and overruled to answer the wisest and greatest purposes. (laughs) That's a mouthful, but that's good stuff. And you know what? He makes everything beautiful in its time. One day, the lion will lay down with the lamb. One day they will beat their swords into plowshares uh, plowshares, and there will be a war no more. One day Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem and there will be no more devil, no more flesh, no more turmoil, no more bloodshed, none of that. He's going to make ultimately everything beautiful in its time. And I'm so glad he's a good God. What if he were a cruel God, an evil God, but he's not? God is good all the time. And God has placed eternity, he says, in the hearts of men. That is, God has placed in the in the inborn DNA of man the capability of conceiving of eternity, of the struggle to apprehend the everlasting, and the longing after an eternal life. You know, we really need to understand this. I don't believe, I, I personally don't believe there's really ever deep down a genuine atheist. I believe atheists don't want there to be a God because they want to do their own thing. They don't want to be under God's requirements, God's judgment, anything of God. But I believe deep down. Every human being is aware that there's an eternity. This is not all there is. It says God has placed eternity in the hearts of every person. He has placed it there. I'm so aware of that when I preach, you know, I can have a a house full of people several times a weekend and you'll be preaching the word of God and you'll be very aware. You can tell people are visiting. You can, you can spot people who don't really know the Lord and they're listening and they're, they're in rapt attention and something is registering on the inside of them. They know they're hearing of another world, of a real God, of a real Christ, of a real judgment. They're aware that this is not all there is because God has put eternity in their hearts. He's put it there. Amen? I love it when I can sense that holy hush of the Holy Spirit come down on a crowd when I'm preaching the word. I love it because I can feel God messing with people's stuff. <laughs> Grabbing their attention, getting down into their heart and, and communicating with that something in them that knows, yes, there's an eternity and I'm going there and I'm an eternal person. I have a soul and I'm going to have to do business with him. And there is that supernatural drawing. Oh, man. Just had a Holy Ghost rush. I just love it. I love it. I really do. Now, then he says in verses 12 to 13, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. That's talking about us. I know that nothing is better for us than to rejoice, do good in our lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor What does he say about that? It is whose gift? The gift of God. Solomon has decided that since God has ordered the affairs of this world by a providence that cannot be accelerated and it cannot be slowed down by human cares or anxieties, that we're better off just submitting to God, making good use of what He's given to us, do ourselves no harm. And find ways to do good for others. He sees the works of God as unassailable. As long as he's providential and he's in charge, I'm going to answer him one day. Hey, I'm just going to submit to him. I'm going to enjoy my labor. I'm going to do good for other people. I'm going to live the life he wants me to live. Because I can't do anything about the universe that he's created. It is what it is. It's unassailable. He says in verse 14... Oh, it's jumping around on me up here. Let's see. There we go. I know that whatever, verse 14, I know that whatever God does, say it with me, everybody, it shall be forever. Whatever God does is going to be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it. Why does God do it? Why does he do eternal things? Why the creation that men should fear before him? I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. What God has created cannot be added to by the creation of, say, for example, another species of beings. There's no new species, folks. You do know that, right? There's no new species. There's derivatives of existing species, but there's no evolutionary creation of new species. There never has been. Are you there? See, we're told in evolutionary teaching, all these new species, they, they all came from an original, like I said, a single-celled amoeba that crawled out of some ancient sea. And all these various species have come from that. No, they have never found a new species coming from nowhere. All we see is derivatives of existing species. What God has created, you can't add to it. I mean, that's just a fact. You can't add to it. You know, you you read these articles, and I get a kick out of them. Every once in a while you see uh, scientists or naturalists somewhere in the world were in some remote jungle and they found a new species. And you see the thing. And it looks just like a frog or something else. But there's a new species. No, it wasn't. It's a derivative of an existing species. I didn't mean to get off on this, but it makes me mad. (laughs) There's no new species. Like I always say, evolution will make a monkey out of you. Evolution will make a monkey out of you. The world God has made is set in divine concrete. It is fixed. And when we consider the stunning breadth of what he has made, says Solomon, it causes us to look up and reverence him. Wow, when I see what he did, I reverence God. Amen? He continues in verse 15. That which is has already been. And what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Now, we've crossed this bridge before. In the very beginning of the book, Solomon points out the predictable cycle of life. That's all he's saying. Uh, There's nothing new under the sun. That's one of his favorite statements. If it is, it's already been. And if it will be, whatever will be has already been. Life goes in cycles. That which has been in the past also exists now. Now, I know this may not be making your day and you're not going to go home praising God over that fact. Uh, This is not a huge jump up and shout hallelujah truth. But he said he noticed a a monotony, a monotonous cycle to life. And it's one of the things that depressed him. Now, God governs the world now as he has governed it from the beginning. And the revolutions and operations of nature are the same now. They have been from the beginning, says one commentator. What we see now is the same as has been seen by those before us. Have you ever gone out and looked up at the sky at all those stars and realized Galileo looked at the same thing? Have you ever looked at those stars and said, Jesus looked at those stars? Have you ever looked up at that sky and said, Moses looked right at those stars? Nothing is new. You get sunburned. One time, Moses got sunburned. There's nothing new. There's nothing new. You see birds flying around singing. They all saw that. Okay? They've, They've all been before. And God, he contends will require an account of what is past. Now, let me home in on this one. The phrase, that which is past, is from a Hebrew word meaning to pursue, chase, or persecute. Now, catch this. It's better translated to read this. God will require an account of that which was pursued and persecuted. And here's what it means. At the judgment, God will hold accountable those that chased down and persecuted the helpless and the godly. Let's go back to that verse. God will require an account of what is past. God will will require an account of what has been chased down and hunted and persecuted and killed that's what it's saying God is not going to let his the treatment that his people receive he is not going to let the treatment that the godly receive in being persecuted you know that right now people are being persecuted and martyred all over our world I mean in Egypt they're being martyred I read today a, a quote from a, a Egyptian, Christian that said, we are being slaughtered like sheep by Muslims who kill them because they will not renounce Christianity. Thousands are being martyred as we speak around the world. It says God's going to require an account of that. God's going to require an account of what's been pursued and persecuted. Those that do it are going to have to answer for it i got to tell you, the fearful judgment coming against those that persecute the godly and murder the just is awesome. It's sobering. Uh, Sorry, this thing. John the Revelator spoke about this very thing in Revelation 6. It says, "When when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So here's this scene in heaven. Early on in Revelation, Revelation 6. And it shows this vast multitude of people who had been slain, martyred, because they took a stand for Christ. And For their testimony. And in verse 10 says, They cried with a loud voice saying, Read it with me everybody. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the same thing Solomon's talking about. God's going to require... An account of what is past, of what has been persecuted. And it is awesome. It is sobering. Then a white robe, verse 11 says, was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now you talk about sovereign God. He knows when the last martyr is killed and it's going to be like a full cup. And right now there are multitudes of souls in glory that have been martyred. God says, hang on your vindication and your justice is coming. Hang on because there are more to be martyred. And when that last one is martyred and the cup is full, then God is going to require an account of what has passed. Now, next, he laments the lack of justice he sees in the earth. Boy, I understand this one. Verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun, there he is under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place where there should have been judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. He was saying, I was looking for justice and righteousness. And everywhere I looked, instead, I saw wickedness and there was no justice. And that, this vexed him, and it vexed David as well. It vexed the prophets, Habakkuk and others. All through the Bible were vexed. Why, Lord, do you delay judgment so long? Why are you letting these people get away with this? Any of you ever think that way? Well, where are you, God? Uh, that there's such wickedness going on in our country, and it's like there's nothing happens. Like Where's the justice? And, and this is his vexation, verse 16. He's looking at it under the sun. Life without God. Even so... He takes solace in the fact that ultimately God will judge all these things in his own good time and way. But folks, I assure you, judgment is coming. There is an awesome judgment coming. There is a fearful judgment coming. God is going to judge this world. The day will come when the small and the great are brought up before God. And the books are opened. And the book of life is opened. And whoever's name was not in that book of life is cast into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. Same Bible that gave me John 3.16 tells me that. That there's going to be an awesome judgment. The great white throne judgment. Small and the great. The dead are going to give up uh, those that are in them. Hades is going to give up the dead that are in them. The oceans are going to spew up the dead that are in them and they're all going to be brought before God from ancient times up until the very time of that final judgment. All the souls of every human being that has died without Christ is going to be brought up before God. And there's going to be a judgment. Well, Pastor Jeff, hallelujah. I know that's a heavy word. But, but we need to hear this more. Why don't we hear this more? If our nation heard this more, don't you think there'd be more repentance? Well, they, need, they don't need to hear motivational seminars and God wants you rich. They need to hear you're coming towards a judgment if you don't repent. A judgment. Because God's going to require an account of what is past. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Now, this is him talking now about something he's realized. There is a time there for every purpose and for every work. He's talking about the judgment. I told myself in my heart, says Solomon, God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. It's going to come. Now, next, the sweeping eye of Solomon, who, according to 1 Kings 4, 32 to 33, here's a list of a little bit of his accomplishments. was the author of 3,000 Proverbs, he wrote 1,005 songs. He was a great naturalist. He had interest in animals, birds, snakes, fish, and trees. He, this wise man, compares the fate of men to the fate of animals. Now, look where he goes with this. He says in verse 18, I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests, meaning shows them, that they may see that they themselves are like what, Everybody. is Is Solomon calling us an animal? No. He goes on. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all is vanity. He's saying as the animals die, men die. We're all going to die. Now in verse 20, he says, all go to one place. All are from the dust. And all return to dust. Now that's the way we're like animals. We're going to die. Our bodies are going to die. Their bodies die. They don't know when they're going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. But we're all going to go to the same place. From the dust we came to the dust we return. However, at the resurrection, our bodies will be raised. And we will receive glorified bodies. Now... Let me back up. He is not saying that man is no better than an animal. Man was created in the image of God. However, he's similar to the beast in that he's mortal. He's frail. He will die. His flesh will return to the dust like an animal's does. Now, Peter points out that carrying it a step further, man in his depraved sinful state is often like an animal. Look what Peter says, 2 Peter 2, 12. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. Can anybody say Bill Maher? I don't watch him. You couldn't pay me to watch him. But I do read quotes from him. And God help him. But I'm talking about he blasphemes God and in, in things he doesn't even understand. And, and, and there's a whole sea of people in our country that do this now. They're like unreasoning animals, Peter says. Creatures of instinct. Born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. He's just echoing Solomon there. They're going to perish like an animal. But they are animal-like in the way they live like animals in their sin. Then he admits uncertainty about what happens at the death of man and animals. Now here, if you're a pet lover like me, I want you to grab the sides of your chair. Because... Here, here is a little verse that can give us a little bit of hope that Spot, or in my case, Maxie, is going to go to, to somewhere where I can find him up there. How many of you ever hope, I hope my dog goes to heaven? Oh, okay, cat. All right. Then he admits, he admits uncertainty about what happens at the death of men and animals. He says in verse 21, who knows? Everybody say, who knows? That means he doesn't know. So I'm glad he doesn't know. He says, who knows? The, the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. Now, the New Living uh, Translation puts it this way. For who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the spirit of animals goes down into the earth? Who can prove it? He's saying, I don't know. Now, some of you are thinking, "Well, big deal." Well, he's at least saying he doesn't know. I have to believe that the judge of all the earth will do right regarding the animals he created. I do believe that. Remember when Abraham said, to, uh, or when, um, uh, yeah, it was Abraham said to God, "Shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" When he was interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, "Shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" Now he was making a theological statement that was true. There, the God of all the earth. Will do right. So when it comes to my dogs, your dogs, your pets, all these animals, the beautiful creation of God, I have to believe that God will do right. He's going to do right in whatever happens to them. And then the chapter closes with a resolve in verse 22. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Now, Solomon concludes that man's happiness. Here, you want to be happy? Here you go. Is to make the best of the present. Cheerfully enjoy what the providence of God has given you. Don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you do have. So well, I don't have much. Well, you're saved. If you can't think of anything else to thank God for, you can have a praise moment over the fact that once you were lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. You were going to hell, now you're going to heaven. You were dead, now you're alive. You didn't know God, now you do. You have been redeemed. The Holy Ghost lives inside of you, and you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You can stop right there and praise God. All right? So he says, cheerfully enjoy what the providence of God has given you without worrying about the future. If you want to be happy? There is one good bit of advice from the man of wisdom, Solomon. Thank God for what you have. Amen? Amen? Now next time we're going to look at two are better than one. Let's stand up together, can we? Two are better than one. Let's let's thank God right now. I want you to think about what we talked about On earlier in this message, we were talking about seizing the season, making the most of every opportunity, trusting God, not letting opportunity pass you by. I want to pray that, and I want you to agree with me, that God will give us a fresh understanding of where we are individually in the seasons of our life. I want you to pray about that. I I think I understand what season I'm in. I want all of you to understand what season you're in. Season of singleness, single. Uh, a season of married. A season of just seeking God. A season of stepping out into a ministry of some kind. A season of whatever God knows. But it says redeeming the time, making the most of every opportunity. There is a time, there is a season for every purpose under heaven and in your life. So let's lift our hands to him, can we? And say with me, Lord, tonight. tonight. Show me the season I'm in. Is it summer? summer? Fall? Fall. Winter. Winter. Winter? Spring? What is it? Show me, Lord, what I'm to be pursuing, focusing on. And Father, we bless your name right now that you have redeemed us. And we want to thank you for what we do have by the providence of God. The providence of God has given us what we've got tonight. And Lord, we thank you for that providence of the Lord in our life. We focus on what you've done on our behalf. We focus on what you have brought in. We focus on and thank you for things that you have taken out, things that you have removed for our own good. We thank you, Lord, for where we are tonight in this season and in the providence of God. And we will practice contentment by worshiping you and thanking you for what we have. In the name of Jesus. Now, let's just say thank you. Lift your hands. Just have a thank you moment with the Lord. Just say thank you, Lord, tonight. Praise your name, Lord, tonight. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Let's worship for a moment, Carlito. Let's just come into his presence, into his gates.